Jeff Fuller with you, Jay Fuller Interviews. You can find more information at Jay Fuller Interviews. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, Jay Fuller Interviews. Join the Facebook group, and we're on Instagram and Twitter, Jay Fuller Interviews, now on all podcast platforms. The Backfire Podcast with Jeff Fuller of, yes, Jay Fuller Interviews on Google Podcasts as well as iTunes, because I believe people's stories make our stories much better, less ignorant, and certainly more impactful. Right now, we have a great story for you. This is Sean Grandy. Sean, how are you? I am well. I'm staring at that uh, 15-year-old, 20-pound, heavier, bad haircut picture of me behind you. Saying, yeah. thank, well, thank goodness we evolve. Yeah, we do. Uh, what can I say? But uh, the voice of the Boston Celtics. But I just want to go back. When I was on radio eight or nine years ago, whatever it was, you graciously joined my uh, radio show just after you called some Boston Red Sox games. What was that experience like for you? It's funny to ask. I was just talking about that today, that uh, how much I enjoyed that. Like I always thought I would be a baseball announcer, a baseball announcer or a hockey announcer. Um, the only thing I knew sort of coming out of school was that I didn't know which what my best sport was, but basketball was a clear-cut number four. Hmm. I didn't know what the you know which one between those three. I don't know. Am I going to be an NHL announcer? Am I going to be a baseball announcer? And of course, I think we pretty much know the way that that worked out. So you can't really, you know, what, what's that they say? Life is uh, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Uh, I absolutely loved every minute of that. It was an amazing experience. It was something I'd always wanted to do. I remember being very conscious at the time that I was getting a chance to do those 2025 Red Sox games that year because of what I had done in the NBA and the people knew me in Boston. I was very aware that there were a lot of aspiring baseball announcers who spend a lot of years in the minor leagues and never get that opportunity. So I was very cognizant of that and trying to make it, you know, a very like, high level experience and try to do it, do it very well. And Joker Stiglione, who I work with that summer was like, he couldn't have been, I think he appreciated my appreciation for it and sort of the history of baseball broadcasting. And um, it was, an extraordinary challenge and something I, I really look back on fondly. The, the funny thing that sort of the end of that story was one of the last games I did, I remember getting on the bus in San Francisco and Larry Lucchino and Dr. Charles Steinberg were there and they were, were having this great conversation with them. And like, Oh, we're so happy you're with us this year. And, you know, we've been listening to you for years. And we're talking about Camden Yards and we're talking about baseball. And literally I did the game that night. It was John Lester and Tim Lincecum mm -hmm. in San Francisco on a Monday night. It was like, what, you know, where would you rather be? It was just this amazing experience. And the next day in my hotel room in San Francisco, I got a call that the Celtics did not come to terms with the radio station where we worked and we were moving to a different station. And that was literally the last, that was the end of my baseball career because the Celtics went to a different station from the Red Sox. And that was, so it, uh, just as it had gotten started and was blossoming into this like lifetime summer job, it vanished, which is another lesson, I guess, about about the industry. Yeah, and timing and I guess uh, being prepared, which uh, you all seem to be. Um, something that you mentioned to me, whether somebody told you or you had a concern of yourself, was a game of baseball being slower than that of basketball and just trying to get the proper cadence. Did you have to practice that or did you practice that before calling those Red Sox games? I did. Uh, you know, I did. I remember in, in the weeks leading up to it, you know, practicing and, you know, gearing up for it. Cause I had a few weeks. It was the end of the Celtic season. I don't think I was starting with the Red Sox until the middle of May. So I was able to do, and then I traveled with them before I did my first game. I went with them for that weekend in Minnesota and I, there was an empty booth 
next to, uh, you know, to, to Dave O'Brien and Joe. And I ended up, you know, called the game by myself, but I like to think that I had been preparing my whole life for that, you know, calling games off TV from the time I was seven or eight years old and watching probably every Mets game that took place between 1982 and, you know, 1989, you know, growing up with Tim McCarver and Bob Murphy and all the great Mets announcers. So I think baseball was probably my most natural sport. I just hadn't done it uh, beyond college. So I think it was a matter of finding something that was already inside me when I, when I did it that year. And that was one of the really rewarding parts was people being surprised because in Boston and the people who knew my work, had only heard me do sort of fast action sports. That's probably what our conversation was about back then. And I think people were genuinely shocked when they heard me calling a different game mm. with a different cadence. Yeah. Hey, where did you grow up? I grew up in Greenwich Village in New York City. And so when did you realize that you wanted to have sports as far as your vocation? When I could no longer hit uh, Pony League pitching. Uh, and that was pretty much, I had great plans to play second base for the Mets. Um, but those, when you grow up in Manhattan, um, the athletic dreams are kind of difficult to pursue. Forget hockey. Cause there's no ice, you know, you can't, you can't play hockey. And I think any, every sport you play, if you're a kid growing up somewhere, you know, and my son's had the, like the benefit of having sort of a city life and a, and a suburb life. But you think of growing up and, you know, playing baseball and fields and stuff like that the skin is gone from your knees when you grow up in the city. By the time you're like eight or nine years old, you're already washed up and your, your knees are done because you've been playing on concrete um, your whole life. But it's, you know, it's hard from an organized standpoint. If you want to be a baseball player, like you're playing softball growing up in Manhattan, because there's nowhere really to play hardball. There aren't fields, you know, there aren't, there's not a lot of, not a lot of places to do it. So um, as I said, when I realized that athletically, I'm probably not going to make it uh, to that level. I said, I'm going to be in the major league somehow. And, that, that was my way. Who was your biggest cheerleader growing up? I know that some students, they have these dreams and parents would say, oh, that's a great backup plan, but focus on whatever else. But who really spurred you on towards this venture? Well, I think my mother is still waiting for me to get a real job. So um, <laughs> I'm not sure I'd, I'd start to, I don't, you know, I, I don't have a specific answer for that. I, I was an only child. Um, I, I think that you know, my parents and I lost my, you know, my father died when I was 14, but I, I lost, I, I think they were encouraging of it. I think one thing I remember my father telling me was that it, that the secret to life was really finding a job that you love. Hmm. And I do remember working on some kind of like 12 year old, 13 year old project and him saying that to me um, one day over, over a summer that that really was an important thing. And um, I don't think, it, you know, I was never discouraged from doing it. I think, you know, I, I don't think my mother wanted me to get this extraordinary education and whatever. So I could, you know, follow Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart around the country. I don't think that was her intent in that, but um, I'd never had, I think she's, she would probably tell you in a private moment that she's probably somewhat proud of uh, what I've been able to do. And uh, uh, I think it's a matter of everybody has their own I'm one of the lucky people in the world, and I, I know that, that not everybody gets to live their dream, whatever variation of it it is, and that we all have things that we want to do when we're 12 years old. And luckily, in this world of arrested development in which I'm in, I've been able to avoid getting a real job for all these years. And again, Sean Grandy, the voice of the Boston Celtics, makes some time for us. And uh, Sean, I say that's kind of tongue-in-cheek. I don't know what type of relationship you have with Jeff, but... 
Jeff Twist, native Vermonter, uh, he's always been kind to me, and uh, he's been with the Celtics for a long time. He talks about being a dream job as well. Even the dream job is still a job. Uh, what are the most difficult things about being a part of the Boston Celtics? I think being away from your family, being away from my son, you know, was is the toughest part of it, certainly. And that's something you don't perceive. You know, I was fairly old. I was in my late 30s, you know, when I became a dad. So I had had a career for a long period of time before that. I was used to it. Um, in a certain way. And then also that's this part of your life that sort of gets added to it. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't want to go on this road trip. I don't want to miss more time. I, by the time he was three or four years old, I was doing a lot of other stuff and I was doing some things for CBS and I started doing MMA pretty much full time. And the travel was just, you know, it was the first time in my career I was like making good money and I was, you know, traveling all over the place. And I was doing a show that was getting, you know, a million people watching it, you know, every time we did fights, but uh, it was just too much to be away from him. So I, I think that's certainly the hardest part. And of course, I'm, you know, I'm humble about being able to sort of live my dream, but this is hard work. Of course, it's hard work. And it's extremely, not only is it extremely competitive, uh, there are a lot of elements about my job, which are not ideal. Number one, it's extremely competitive. Number two, it's not a meritocracy. And this is something I, when I speak to kids who want to go into this business, I tell them all the time, this isn't, the best players don't always play. So yeah. It, it doesn't always work that way. So you have to, you know, you may work harder, you may perform better, you, but that's not necessarily going to get you a job. You just have to keep, you know, plugging away at it. Um, but it's, it is, it's difficult work. And then you add the element of, of social media now and hyper criticism and the things that come with it. You can go, call a great game and, you know, oftentimes there'll be some clown on social media that just wants to drag you for, for no reason. So I think those are the, the downsides of it, but, I think the upsides certainly outweigh them all. Yeah. And uh, I certainly appreciate your call of the Boston Celtics. Um, it's interesting. There was a game, I can't remember, a couple years ago when the Celtics, it was before Jalen Brown, but they were struggling so badly from the three-point line. And every time you said so-and-so for three, you try to force or push that shot down through the cylinder, but it just would not go. When you're calling a game like that, how do you stay up for the game or motivated? Or are you not really a fan of the Celtics anymore? You just know the business side of it. Well, I think you're, you're telling the story. You're, you are part of the Celtics organization that you are telling the story from a Celtics perspective. I get, I don't want to say I get criticism. I get very, you know, Max and I are very lucky. We're, we're very tenured and we don't get a lot of heat, obviously. But, you know, the little that we do stems from people that want us to be more, more homerish you know, in the great tradition of Celtics announcers and, and Johnny Most and Tommy Heinsohn, who call things not as they see them, but just, or, or maybe they do call them as they see them, but they see them just completely as fans. Um, I think it's about, you know, it's about storytelling. It's about, um, the, the, to me, the most romantic job in play-by-play -play is being a team announcer. For all the national stuff I've done, and I love it, telling the story of a team from opening day of training camp to the last playoff game is is the beauty of it. And as far as, you know, finding a motivation on any on game 17 of 82, um, I have something that I do that I've always done, which is I, before a game, I will try to find, I try to make eye contact or find a kid, find a 10 year old kid, a 12 year old kid in the crowd walking around sort of wide eyed, excited to be there. And remember that that is me and that that's, I'm doing what I always 
wanted to do. And from the time I would go to games at Madison Square Garden as a kid, this was my my dream to do it. And that will sort of snap you out of whatever bad day, mortgage payment, dentist appointment, you know, fog you may be in on any given day. That's so good. And uh, now it's certainly different times with COVID, with the pandemic, the bubble. Uh, hopefully we can have fans in the future, but it's just kind of a crazy time. When you think about um, not having fans, how much does that take away, not just from the players, but from what you do? Well, it was my biggest concern. I, it was extremely difficult to do what we did. I'm proud of what Max and I and our crew that put together those games accomplished. I tell this story a lot, but a couple of times in July and August, just walking around Boston or being you know, out and, out and about in Boston, somebody would see me and say, wait a minute, I thought – I thought you were in Orlando. And that to me was the, that's the good, best compliment you can receive that we've, we, we made it convincing enough that it really sounded like we were there and it sounded like a real game. Um, you know, first of all, and we talk about hardships and what I think it goes without saying that in the year 2020, in the context of coronavirus, hardship is not really the word you want to use when it comes to having to call a game without fans uh, compared to what, all of us and what many, many people and hundreds of thousands of people have gone through in dealing with the, the disease and all the hardships and everything that we are trying to, trying to battle through. But it was my biggest concern was I would say to people, well, I'm a singer who no longer has music, hmm. right? This is going to be acapella. And it ended up being different because it was a lot of music piped in. It was different things. The NBA was amazing and all the things they tried. But I described it many times as being a lot closer to acting than I'm comfortable with um, in my chosen line of work. And that it was really in watching announcers and other sports before we started up again with empty arenas and no fans. The sort of common theme was the energy level was low. And these aren't just regular games. These are significant games. They were important regular season games. Then you're going to the playoffs and first round, second round, Eastern Conference finals. You have to find a way with your voice to drive it to the point where not where you're screaming to people, but there's an intensity to the way I will call certain games. And you got to find that even without fans and just put yourself in a mental place that this is game two of the Eastern conference finals. And it doesn't matter if you're sitting in the Celtics locker room or not, like you have to do it. You have to call what it is. That's real good. Sean Grandy makes some time. Twitter, Sean Grandy, PBP play by play. Uh, Sean, couple of Celtics questions. Jason Tatum, how tall is he? Huh. Well, I, I haven't seen him in a few weeks, but because uh, he still could be getting taller. He still could be growing at his age. Um, I, you know, six, seven. He's in that in that range. Hopefully, he's, you know, hopefully he's still growing. But he's he's uh, the way his growth this year wasn't height. His growth this year was, you know, figuring out the moments that can make him one of the elite players in the league and, and the growing pains that, that come with that at, you know, at 22 years old. So uh, some of my friends just had this fake tough guy discussion on social media and I came up what? with that. That's redundant, by the way. I came up with Anthony Mason. Uh, some people said that Marcus Smart is the real deal. Can you confirm that? <laughs> uh, I don't think there's any, there's any question about it. And, and whatever it is, that, that context of, of conversation is, uh, it's about from a basketball standpoint, from a human standpoint, from a from a tough guy standpoint. You know, we, we talk all the time and I tried to set, although you cannot really separate 
the world around us from what was going on, you know, in the bubble. And I was very, very happy to put stick to sports permanently to sleep because that died its death this year, that there is no more stick to sports because that's another thing people have gotten on Max and I over the years is that we don't and tough if you don't like it because the, the worlds are too connected. But we had one, we did a special show in between that break before the Toronto series when, you know, the Black Lives Matter again was was rising back to the surface and the players didn't want to play. And we just did a show on what would have been the night of game one and talking about, uh, you know, again, trying to not use social media to overly soapbox and everybody does that. But there are times you become so frustrated with people criticizing NBA players for how can these, these privileged young men, and it's obviously the Marcus Smart question that, that triggered this in me and this answer and that privileged, privileged. These are 22, 23 year old men who are Patriots fighting for what they believe in and doing it at risk of their uh, stature in life and what they have achieved as NBA players, which nobody handed to them. They didn't get these spots because they knew somebody or they were somebody's son or somebody's cousin. They worked their way into these spots. And Marcus Smart, who had to escape, you know, he would be escaping gunfire Mm -hmm. in suburban Dallas growing up in some really ugly parts of the city. And, he's made this life for himself to become an elite NBA player and his toughness comes from that. Jalen Brown's toughness comes from the way they, you know, have earned these spots and risen from a life where not a lot of people rise from it. Yeah. I want to return to the, uh, that conversation in a little bit, but I just have a question about Kemba Walker. Uh, I think he has one of the best jump shots, pure form jump shots that there is Maybe got exposed. I don't know. I'll leave that to the experts. But uh, Kemba, he seems to be a great fit in Boston. Can you just talk about some of the leadership differences between him and Kyrie Irving? Yeah, you know, Kyrie is his own podcast, right? Kyrie is like a multi-series. Kyrie is a mini-series of podcasts, for better or worse. And whoever followed him was going to, uh, again, was going to be unable probably to do a lot of the basketball things he could do, but by definition was sort of set up to be a better quote unquote leader and, you know, and sort of lead by example. It was the perfect situation for Kemba Walker to, to come into in Boston. But, you know, the Kyrie thing is, listen, it's fascinating on a variety of levels. I always, I would get some heat here because I was too critical of Kyrie when he was here. And then when everybody turned on him, when he kind of went back on his word and said, we'll see what happens in July and whatever. And it was obvious he wasn't going to stay. Everybody here turned on him. And then suddenly I became too pro Kyrie, even though my opinion never really changed because Kyrie was the same guy in Boston that he was in Cleveland. I said this a million times, you know, Kyrie Irving was here in Boston. He was Kyrie Irving. Same duty was in Cleveland. Same duty's going to be in Brooklyn. That's, that's Kyrie. I think we all convinced ourselves I think even not just fans, I think to some degree, the organization convinced themselves when they landed Kyrie Irving and suddenly you had the most beautiful girl in the world on your arm and you had heard some stuff about previous relationships and yeah, there was some behavior there, but what do we always say in that spot? Well, that won't happen with me. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen to me. That that's, you know, that's the other guy that that happened with. And then the same stuff happened here and it'll happen here in Brooklyn because that's, 
that's Kyrie Irving, and that's his deal for better, you know, for better or worse. But Kemba, I think by definition, just walked into a great situation. And I think Kemba and Gordon Hayward both had been in the situation a lot of guys get to in the league. They had been the star player on a decent team or a bad team. They had been to all-star games. They had scored 20-something points a game. They had done individually what there was to do. Now they want to win. So here you have Gordon Hayward and Kemba Walker in a situation where they are capable of dropping 30 and being the best player on any given night. But if it's Jason Tatum's night or it's Jalen Brown's night, whatever it takes to win, they just want to win. And what I will remember from Kemba Walker's first year here, more than anything else, more than the jump shot, more than whatever, is you couldn't, with a sledgehammer, you couldn't take the smile off that dude's face. He was so happy to be here. They lose opening night. He didn't play well in Philadelphia. And then the Celtics win 10 in a row after that. And they're 10-1. and one. And here's a dude who, as a rookie in Charlotte, won seven games all wow. year. They were 7-59 and 59 his rookie year. And all of a sudden, he's 10-1. and one. He's playing in Boston where the fans care. And he was he was thrilled. Now I think we'll never really know how healthy he was or wasn't uh, throughout the summer um, and into the playoffs. But um, just such a happy guy. Oh, that's awesome. I'd love to talk more uh, specifically about different players, but I know you have to go in a little bit, so I'll just transition. First of all, I got to say I love Jalen Brown. There's some nights where I think he's just going to be phenomenal, and I almost want to advocate him over Jason Tatum. But then I just want to. Uh, bask in the fact that they're playing together which is uh quite a compliment hey the question is what did you know about max before you guys worked together um well i max and i had worked together a little bit at the radio station at the flagship radio station where they, when max was hired to do the games in 1995 and it's funny we just passed the 25th anniversary of launching uh the glenn ordway's big show which was a bunch of people on and that's obviously i was on that show at the start doing doing my part of it and Max was a frequent guest, so I had met him a little bit there and knew him a little bit then from that. And then my first game in the NBA was a four a 4.30 in the afternoon program director comes into my studio where I've been doing the updates on the afternoon show and said, Howard Davis is not going to make it back from Miami. Um, after doing Monday Night Football, you're doing Celtics tonight. And that was at 4 o'clock or whatever. It was right before Christmas in uh, 97. And so we did that game. I think I did another film game after I was in Minnesota. But it was Max, the relationship, it developed very quickly. But he was the one who called me. I turned the job down a couple of times in the summer of 2001 uh, to stay in Minnesota. I had several years left on a contract to do TV in Minnesota. And it was when Max called my house and we started to talk about the possibility. That was the first time I really considered it. And it's funny. I knew him more as, you know, I knew him a little bit as a player, but I really knew him more from the years I was working at the station and his first few years as a broadcaster with, with Spencer Ross and Howard David. So unless you've hit it, uh, you did not play professional basketball. Was that refreshing, do you think, for Max to have you coming from that side? And was that refreshing for you knowing that you guys had uh, complementary viewpoints and perspectives? Well, I think our mix had to do with the people, you know, the people that we are that were on the surface very different, but we had the, this very unusual um, combination. Like I was the, you know, I was the young white kid that listened to Jay Z, and he was the older African American guy that listened to James Taylor. And it was this sort of the combination of our our ages and our different backgrounds. I'm very city; he's very country, and I think we played that up a little bit. Like obviously, 
it's a it's a pro wrestling thing, right? Like you take your personalities and then you turn the dial up. And Max being sort of plain spoken and country at times, he turns that up. And so I would turn up the city, use bigger words type thing. And we just became a, you know, it became a dynamic right away. And I, I think by our third or fourth preseason game the first year, it was pretty clear to me that it was going to be a thing for a long time. So now for me, uh, I'm Korean. I was adopted as an infant, grew up right here in Vermont. And uh, something that I've never really understood, never had to deal with it, is that of racism. When people would think or even now would say that, how could you work with Max? Can you even fathom where that mindset comes from? No, because I, I often say, listen, I grew up in New York, and I think the term now people use is the post-racial world, but I grew up in New York where you are raised to hate everybody. Okay. I don't have time to divide people. Like, you're trying to get home and not get mugged, right? Like, when I was growing up in New York, you don't have time to divide people up into groups. Um, you know, I always like to think of it, and I think in a lot of ways, I'd like to think of it as something, you know, racism as a concept and ignorance was something that would just die out with older people that felt that way. And I think this year was jarring for a lot of us. I was someone who on May 25th of this year, I was still ignorant enough to think that somebody having a phone taking a video of a police officer would be enough to stop him from killing somebody. Like it, that, it, the fact that it would be on camera in my mind, I'm like, that's, that, that there's no way this is going to happen if the police officer knows, you know, he's being, he's being filmed. I think the, the most uncomfortable thing about the summer for someone like me is that I was forced to think of myself as being white, which I never did. I never identified whatever the term is now that way. And it forced me to look at things like white privilege and things like that, that I never wanted to because that stuff never entered my consciousness. And I was resentful that there's so much ignorance and hatred out there that it forced, you know, it, it forced this back on us. But I was so proud of so many of the players on the Celtics in our league for taking leadership roles now and uh, using our platform, which is an extraordinary platform to talk about these things and to, you know, use it to say whatever it is that, listen, we're most proud of being in sports. We chose to be in sports for a living. You know, there's a lot more things that are more substantive on the surface, but I've always been proudest of being in sports and proudest of giving my life to sports when we lead society rather than follow it. And that happened. Jackie Robinson played for the Dodgers 17 years before the civil rights act, yeah, you know, yeah. think about that. And so the fact that the NBA was the first league to shut down this year, like they took the, you know, Adam Silver on March 10th, when that happened, people were like, what are you doing? That's crazy. That's a crazy overreaction, which of course it wasn't, but we were the first league to do it. And we were the league to let the players take the lead and all get together and say, what can we do to stop this insanity from happening when we, we are seeing these things that we don't even believe sometimes in the street. And how would you, you know how the rage that it fills you with when you know young black men are being killed in our country and young white kids are walking around with AK-47s and cops are throwing them bottles of water when, as I said the night we did, we did that show, if that kid in 
uh, Wisconsin or wherever it was in Illinois, if that kid had been black, they wouldn't have thrown him a bottle of water because he'd be dead. And we know that we know that to be the case. Like, how do we fix it? And I have to watch, you know, someone who is family to me, Doc Rivers, break down in tears and say, why is it that black people love America, but America doesn't love them back? And he's a guy who had his house burned down by white supremacists and found a way to go on. And there's all these things that we just don't. So what are we doing with this platform if not making the world a better place? Yeah, so powerful. So, Sean, I'll end with a later question. Uh, this is stolen from Hernando Planos, the Be Contagious podcast. Make sure that check uh, you check that out. He always finishes with saying, uh, if or when, in your case, when the feature film is made about you, your life, who plays you in that feature film? So, I, you know, I never thought of that because um, I just don't see that feature film happening. You know, when I was – it's funny because in the 90s, it was a much bigger star. People always told me that uh, David Duchovny – Okay, there you go. You know, right, hey, right. It's really, it's more from the side. It's like a, a, a profile thing. But I, yeah, I used to get that one. Uh, I used to get that one a lot. But I assume, I mean, it would just have to be someone, as my wife would tell you, it would have to be someone staggeringly handsome. I would imagine even just try to, try to fill the, fill the shoes somehow. And so I always yeah. say, I say the Rock because Dwayne Johnson playing me. I don't care if we look alike or not. That would just be cool. The second part to that question is, who plays your love interest? In that feature film, Dana, how are you? You could play yourself, but Sean, what say you? Well, I am deeply, deeply in love with my wife, and there is nobody that could possibly fill that spot. Natalie Portman. <laughs> there you go. Um, hey, so yeah, there's just it's an easy call. <laughs> Sean, thanks so much for making the time. Um, super generous, and uh, certainly a joy for me. So thanks again. My pleasure. And again, that's Sean Grandy, the uh, voice of the Boston Celtics. Make sure you check out his work on Twitter. It's at Sean Grandy PBP. With that, I'm out. Remember, people's stories make your story much better. Just learn from them, unlearn what you thought was right, and relearn how to do things better. With that, we're out.